Welcome to the February 2023 issue of Heart Rhythm 02. I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief. The first article is an interesting paper which looks at using transcutaneous ultrasonic LV pacing as a screening tool to improve patient selection. The title of this paper is First in Human Non-Invasive Left Ventricular Ultrasound Pacing, a Potential Screening Tool for Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy by Dr. Ken Bilchik and colleagues. The ultrasound pacing system used delivers single ultrasound pulses after each P wave using surface ECG electrodes. P wave triggered ultrasound stimuli were then delivered with escalating doses of the echo contrast to simulate CRT non-invasively. A number of different LV locations at multiple AV delays were tested. The Medtronic Cardial Insight mapping best was used at baseline during ultrasound pacing and after the CRT implant. The results in 10 patients were compared to 10 patients who underwent CRT without the prior ultrasound pacing simulations. Ultrasound pacing was accomplished in all the patients with a mean of 81 ultrasound paced beats per patient. Consecutive paced beats were achieved up to 20 consecutive beats. The best QRS width was identified for each of the patients and the QRS width at baseline decreased to 117 milliseconds from 168 milliseconds at the site of the best ultrasound paced beat. Activation patterns were compared between the CRT pacing and the ultrasound pacing in the same LV area. There was no difference in troponins between the two patient groups. The authors conclude that non-invasive ultrasound pacing can be performed safely and may be useful to estimate the degree of electrical resynchronization that might be expected from the actual CRT implant. The authors make the key point that ultrasound pacing may be useful in the future for performing non-invasive EP studies, non-invasive overdrive pacing of VT, and optimization of myocardial targets for stereotactic body radiation therapy through non-invasive induction of ventricular tachycardia. This paper has an editorial written by Dr. Thomas Deering, who quotes Albert Einstein, we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that we use to create them. Well put, Dr. Deering, and thank you for discussing this paper. I'm encouraging the readers to read your editorial. The next study is titled Impact of Intensive Follow-Up of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices via Remote Monitoring, a Pilot Study, by Kyle Heath and colleagues. In this study, the authors evaluate the efficiency and workflow of implementing an intensive remote monitoring to standard remote monitoring. 70 patients underwent the intensive remote monitoring and were compared to the 70 patients with routine remote monitoring, which was limited to office hours. Intensive monitoring was conducted with an automated vendor-neutral software, which included a rapid alert processing system by individuals who were IBHRE certified. The red-yellow-green alert system was followed. The study time was nine months, during which 922 remote transmissions were received, of which 339 were actionable. 118 of these in the intensive remote monitoring and 221 in the standard remote monitoring. In the intensive remote monitoring, the median time to a review was about six hours, and the time to actionable alerts was 5.1 hours. The median time to any reviewed and actionable reviews was about four hours longer in the standard remote monitoring group. But when the authors only examined the effect of off-hours availability and compared that to the response time of transmissions received during office hours only, it was about 6.7 hours for intensive remote monitoring compared with 12.2 hours for the standard remote monitoring. 
The authors conclude that intensive remote monitoring with IBHRE certified individuals providing 24-7 service decreases the time to review alerts and overall the number of actionable alerts. The next paper is called Diagnostic Yield of an Insertable Cardiac Monitor in a Large Patient Population by Dr. Dennis Lau and colleagues. This study provides a contemporary clinical utility assessment of the Biotronic Biomonitor 3 implantable cardiac monitor. The primary outcome measure was time to diagnosis per implant indication or time to first change in AF therapy evaluated at one year post-implant. The patient population is drawn from two prospective clinical trials and included 632 patients. The indications included syncope or presyncope in 384 patients, cryptogenic stroke in 133 patients, and 49 patients were treated who were being followed for AF monitoring. Amongst the syncope and presyncope group, a little over a third had a diagnosis made by one year of follow-up. Most were identified to have an indication for a permanent pacemaker. 16.6% of the cryptogenic stroke patients had AF identified by one year requiring oral anticoagulation. The majority of those being followed for AF recurrence surveillance, 41% had a change in AF therapy based upon the findings. There were 66 patients who had the ICM for other reasons than already noted, and of these, 35.4% had a diagnosis made by one year of follow-up. Overall, the authors conclude that clinically significant findings were identified in about 25% of the total patient population with a range between 16.5 up to 41% of the patients. The next paper is titled Cost Effectiveness of Atrial Fibrillation Screening in Canadian Community Practice by Dr. Jason Andrade and colleagues. This paper looks at the cost efficacy of point-in-time single ECG lead AF prospective screening in Canadian residents aged 65 or older. The yield and cost was compared to patients identified with AF through usual care. Using an adapted Markov cohort model, the two cohorts were examined for a number of events including the lifetime incidence of AF, thromboembolic and bleeding events, cardiovascular hospitalization, mortality, quality adjusted life years, and the cost in 2019 Canadian dollars associated with screening, oral anticoagulant treatment and routine care, and clinical events. Mortality was based on the 2017 Canadian life tables and was age and sex adjusted. Epidemiology inputs were derived from the SAVE Canadian Community Primary Care Screening Program and the AF-related clinical events from Aristophanes and Aristotle AF trials. The deterministic results for the AF screening identify 127,670 additional AF cases compared to the control group. That group had a lower incidence of ischemic strokes and MIs, but more major bleeding events, which represented an additional 30,759 cases. The incremental QALY was 59,577 years in the screening cohort. AF screening was more costly than usual care but the incremental cost savings overall was 70 million Canadian dollars over a lifetime due to improved health outcomes. The authors concluded that single point-in-time AF screening is cost-effective due to the ability to decrease future health expenditures. They make the point that this is important data for single-payer healthcare systems. The next paper is titled Hybrid Epicardial Endocardial Ablation for Longstanding Persistent Atrial Fibrillation, a Sub-Analysis of the Converge Trial, by Dr. David Delurgio and colleagues. 
The converged trial has previously been published. The trial evaluated the efficacy of a hybrid endocardial-epicardial approach to AF ablation in 153 patients with persistent or long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation at 27 enrolling sites. The primary trial results showed superior freedom from recurrent AF at 12 months compared to the endocardial-only ablation strategy. This post hoc analysis focuses just on the 65 patients with long-standing persistent AF. Of these, 38 underwent the convergent procedure and the remaining 27 had just endocardial ablation. The one-year freedom from AF off of antiarrhythmic drugs was 65.8% with the convergent procedure and 37% with the endocardial-only ablation. At 18 months, the freedom from AF was 60.5% versus 25.9%. When the one-year outcomes were assessed just for those who were off of antiarrhythmic drugs, the freedom from AF was 52.6% in the convergent group versus 29.5% in the endocardial-only group. Three, or 7.9% major adverse events occurred within 30 days in the convergent group, and there were no major events in the endocardial ablation-only group. The authors conclude that in this post-hoc analysis, effectiveness and acceptable safety was demonstrated using the hybrid convergent ablation approach in patients with long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation. The next paper's title is Short-Term and Long-Term Effects of Non-Invasive Cardiac Radio Ablation for Ventricular Tachycardia, a single-center case series by Dr. Wanik Chang and colleagues. This study reports on six patients with ventricular tachycardia or frequent PVCs who underwent radio ablation. The authors evaluated the acute and long-term effects of this therapy. Patient candidates were those with two or more episodes of VT, PVC-induced cardiomyopathy with a 15% or more PVC burden, or patients with recurrent sustained VT receiving ICD therapies. And the patients had to have failed treatment with either antiarrhythmic drugs or prior standard VT ablation. None had an LVEF of less than 15% or a life expectancy of less than one year. Pretreatment imaging evaluation was at the discretion of the managing physician and included chest CT scans, CMRs, and single photon emission CT scans. The protocol was for patients to receive a single fraction 25 gray dose. The ECG monitoring protocol was for 24 hours prior and 48 hours after the ablation. The patient group was 72 years of age and two of them were female. One had prior VT storm, two had incessant VT, and three patients had PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. Two of the six described also had ICD therapies. The total number of ventricular beats per day decreased by 49% within 24 hours after radio ablation. By one month, the total number of ventricular beats had decreased to 30% of the pre-radiotherapy value. At the one-month follow-up, the total number of ventricular beats for the five patients with VT decreased to 16% of their baseline values. However, one patient with PVC-induced cardiomyopathy had a 28% decrease in the total ventricular beats at 48 hours, but a 101% increase at one month post-radiotherapy. The impact on the decrease in ventricular beats for the whole group was mostly driven by VT rather than the PVC burden. At the one-month follow-up, all five of the patients with VT had no episodes of VT lasting longer than 30 seconds. Regarding safety... One patient had worsening of heart failure, and one person each had fatigue, abdominal discomfort, and nausea. The authors conclude that among six patients with intractable ventricular arrhythmias, cardiac radio ablation was successful to decrease the VT burden, including an early effect by 24 hours, as well as in the longer-term effect. 
The next paper by Dr. Yonkai Guao and colleagues is called Low-Level Tragus Stimulation Improves Autoantibody-Induced Hyperadrenergic Postural Tachycardia Syndrome in Rabbits. This is an interesting animal study using a rabbit model for postural orthostatic hypotension syndrome to study the effect of transcutaneous low-level tragus stimulation on autoantibody-induced autonomic dysfunction and inflammation. Six rabbits were studied. They were co-immunized with peptides from the alpha-1 adrenergic and beta-1 adrenergic receptors in order to produce sympathomimetic antibodies. Tilt-table studies were used to assess POTS physiology. These were performed at baseline, then six weeks, and again at 10 weeks after immunization. Each rabbit served as its own control. The primary observation was an enhanced postural heart rate increase in the absence of significant change in blood pressure. A power spectral analysis of heart rate variability during the tilt table test was performed. This showed predominance of sympathetic activity during follow-up. Serum inflammatory cytokines were significantly increased in immunized rabbits while acetylcholine secretion was increased. Antibody suppression, however, was not observed to decrease. The authors conclude that low-level tragus stimulation improves cardiac autonomic imbalance and inflammation in a rabbit model of autoantibody-induced hyperadrenergic POTS syndrome. The next paper is a very nice topical review paper. It is titled The Value of Functional Substrate Mapping in Ventricular Tachycardia Ablation by Dr. Constantino Vlacos and colleagues. The authors discuss the breadth of VT mapping and ablation techniques as well as future and novel technologies. The final two papers are Perspectives and Contrast. These papers contrast use of sheath-driven versus stylet-driven leads for left-bundle-branch area pacing. The first paper, authored by Drs. Panusami and Vijay Ehrman, discuss their rationale for still favoring a sheath-driven approach, whereas Dr. Puder from the Ghent University Hospital in Belgium in the second paper argues for using a stylet-driven left-bundle-branch area pacing approach. Well, that ends our podcast for February 2023. I wish you a great rest of your month, and please do tune in for the March podcast for HRO2.